Blog Talk Radio. Now, the Speaker of the House has had a date where she said we're going to pass the legislation, and she's 0 for 4. Meanwhile, Jordan said the recent GOP wins in Virginia point to how people are frustrated with growing government control. Police officers said at least eight people were killed and many others injured in a crush when fans surged toward the stage at the Astro World Music Festival in Houston Friday while rapper Travis Scott was performing. This is a tragic night, Houston Fire Chief Samuel Pena told a news conference outside NRG Park, the event venue. This is USA Radio News. Zinworld Premium CBD offers full and broad-spectrum CBD oil, extracts, and capsules, which are designed to help you feel your best. Their products are sourced from the best organic hemp and natural ingredients on the market and are tested for quality, purity, and potency. They have a full range of items from health and wellness to beauty to pets. Call 725-205-9223. Visit online at Zinworld.com or stop by their location at 9895 South Maryland Parkway and Silverado Ridge Parkway. Mention KSHP for 10% off in-store or use cocaine. SHP online for 15% off. Times have changed, but the joy of date night remains. Sharing a meal with someone special is more meaningful now than ever before. Let Finger Licking Foodie Tours host the ultimate date night with an exclusive private self-guided foodie tour. Visit three of Aria's hottest restaurants, Catch Carbone and Jean George Steakhouse, all in one night with immediate seating, 10 signature dishes, and an optional helicopter ride over the strip afterwards. This memorable experience is ideal for a couple of out-of-town guests and celebrations. Schedule your date night at FingerLickingFoodieTours.com. Have you heard the big news? VentFlow Teak Las Vegas has a new name. Now you can call this amazing salon Sparkle Beauty Bar. Sparkle Beauty Bar is a full-service salon specializing in blowouts, makeup, cut, color, and now mobile services. Same great locations in downtown Summerlin and Henderson off of Green Valley Parkway and Horizon Ridge. Check out all they have to offer at sparklebeautybars.com. That's sparklebeautybars.com. Let your best hair day be every day. Is your dog suffering from a sensitive stomach? Hi, it's Kelly the Cookie Lady from Mooch's Munchies. Our dogs had super sensitive tummies, and I needed to find a low-fat treat that wouldn't give them gas or other issues. Most of the treats on the market were loaded with fillers, chemicals, and chicken fat. Many of them weren't even food. Well, I knew I could do better, so I developed Mooch's Munchies, and I'm happy to be able to share them with you. Stop by our store or our website, moochesmunchies.com, and find out why we say that Mooch's Munchies are totally possum. You are cheap. No, I'm not. You are cheap. No, I'm not. You are cheap. No, I'm not. You are cheap. Well, maybe I am. If you're buying a diamond ring for your wife, it's not cool to be cheap. If you're buying airline tickets, oh, it's very cool to be cheap and called Trip Amigo, where you can fly anywhere in the world and save up to 75% on over 500 airlines and 300,000 hotels. Plus, rental cars and vacation packages. Visit family, friends, or go on a once-in-a-lifetime vacation. Go ahead. Be cheap. We have special fares we're not allowed to publish. When you book your airline reservations with Trip Amigo, you'll spend your travel money when you get there, not by getting there. Call Trip Amigo now and mention the travel code AMIGO and save even more. Call Trip Amigo now. 800-772-4165. 800-772-4165. That's 800-772-4165. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the following program are those of the program's participants and do not necessarily represent those of station staff, management, and advertisers. It's Film Festival Radio. 
the show where superstars and future stars happily coexist together. And now, here's your host, Janice Malone. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the show here with me, Janice Malone, on Film Festival Radio Show. And yes, we are in the month of November. And don't forget tomorrow, yeah, I know, midnight, we got to roll our clocks back one hour. And I must admit, this is not a good time of year. Every year, the whole, you know, rollback, spring forward, I, I don't like the rollback. Because it's dark early. It's, it's just, ugh. I, I'd rather eat licorice candy or something. It's just bad. I, I don't like it. That's just me. I just don't like it. But we got to do it. We have to do it. So don't forget, tonight, roll the clocks back at midnight. And hey, we'll just take it from there. And then afterwards, make sure you drive safely because it'll be dark early. Yeah. Uh, you know. Well, you know what? Let's just on to bigger, better, more exciting things here. And that includes our show. We have two, three guests for this show. We have two authors and we have a film festival uh, director uh, joining us. So uh, let's start with our first guest here. Um, if you are a fan or a lover of National Geographic magazine, National Geographic, uh, Nat Geo, the Network, just anything with and about National Geographic. I grew up on Nat Geo, as they now call it, on the magazine, So, like so many millions of us did around the world. And so now uh, they have just so many books that they've released over the many decades here. And so they have a brand new one that just uh, came out just a few days ago, actually. It's titled The 21st Century Photographs from the Image Collection, and this is a very, very beautiful book. It is, it's just stunning. It's huge. Let me tell you how many pages. Hold on. This book is real heavy. I know this book must weigh at least five pounds or more. It has, it is so beautiful. Wait a minute. Let me see how many pages is in here. Okay. It has a total of 312 pages, and Oh, photographs, photographs, over 250 plus photographs. And these are photographs from photographers from around the world. And it chronicles and showcases the first 21 years of the 21st century. Again, it's just a spectacular showcase of stunning moments that have happened in this era from around the world, such as... Um, these really, it just it's kind of bizarre but beautiful crystal caves that are underground in various parts of the world. Um, the first glimpse of Christ's tomb in more than 500 years. That's another picture. Thriving, uh, and I keep hitting my microphone. My nails are extra long right now, but that's what that is. But they're they're thriving photographs of what's going on underneath and. Antarctica, other than cold weather. Just 
uh, riots, protests, uh, forestry, oceans, um, life in oceans, just again, different scenes, imagery that have taken place, significant uh, events throughout so far the 21st century. And as I said, this is a very large book. We're in holiday season. This would make an excellent gift for someone that you know who loves uh, this type of uh, photography. Maybe they're just a big fan like I am of National Geographic. And it's one of those types of books that you want to keep around. It's a coffee table style book. Uh, Being in media, I get so many free books. Sometimes I have to just donate them, you know, maybe to the library or to friends that I know. But there are some that are keepers. This one is a keeper for me. And again, the title is The 21st Century Photographs from the Image Collection. And we have, we are so fortunate, we have uh, one of the editor-in-chief uh, representatives from Nat Geo. Her name is Susan Goldberg, and she is on the line. I understand she and the publicist, and they are on the line. So let's bring on editor-in-chief from National Geographic, Nat Geo for short, of course, Susan Goldberg, to tell us more about their latest huge book that I just love. I'm kind of hugging on the book right now. So let's bring uh, Susan on right now to tell us more about the making of this fantastic new book. And you're on with Janice. Hello, Janice. Hi, Susan. Such a pleasure to chat with you this afternoon. I guess this afternoon for sure your time. And, um, well, we have, at least you have, you and your staff, you have this wonderful new book. Uh, I mean, who doesn't love National Geographic? Uh, the new book, The 21st Century, Photographs from, from the Image Collection. And so this is basically a beautiful book that has some of the best photographs from the 21st century, according to you and your editors that you guys have selected and compiled them all for National Geographic. What a wonderful but obviously huge job that was. You, you know, with cell phones and drones and selfies and regular pictures, how, how many pictures did you guys have to sort through? Well, the National Geographic Image Collection is huge, right? It's one of the largest collections of images in the world anywhere. And it has tens and tens of millions of images. Just this year alone, about 2 million more images will be added to our image collection. And these days, most of those images are digital images. But when you actually go into the image collection, it's here in our building in Washington, D.C., you can see lots of slides and, and photographic prints from, you know, from decades and decades ago. So in this case, though, we were just looking at the first 21 years of the 21st century. So it did kind of narrow that field. But as you, you know, as you know, there were still millions of images to sort through. It was hard. Oh, I can only imagine because there's so many great ones, especially from around the world. So how, how, I mean, what kind of categories, I understand that uh, you, you all put the images in chronologically, chronological, I should say, orders as opposed to themes. So what kinds of themes uh, are we talking about for this book? Well, of course, at National Geographic, we take pictures of really life on Earth, right, as it, as it unfolds. So we have 
all kinds of documented important incidents, such as we have pictures from 9-11, from, um, right, one of the first biggest events of the 21st century that is still affecting our, our world today. Uh, so we have pictures from 9-11, from but we've got, you know, then pictures from as recently as the, as the insurrection, right, of January in 2021. And we organize the book chronologically so when you sit back and you have this book in front of you and it is a big book right it weighs about five pounds i would say it's about 430 pages you're paging through it and you're going on this journey through time pretty much you know anybody over the age of 30 is going to remember a lot of the events depicted in the book and i really like it that it's chronological because it sort of takes you um through this shared history told through photography, and we have all been on this journey together. Oh, absolutely. We definitely have. Uh, I'm sure there are many, many photographs that we'll see um, that we've forgotten, not because it's not important or didn't make an impact, but because there's so much news always going on. But I'm, that's what I'm looking forward to, to seeing photos of places that I've forgotten about or maybe incidents that I've forgotten. That's always kind of fun for me, at least, I'm sure. Absolutely, and, and I hope that people see things that they never knew about in the first place, right? And they'll go, wow, that was cool. Let me find out more. And so that's one of the things that I think a National Geographic uh, photograph does, that it should stop you in your tracks. It should make you curious about what happened, and it should make you want to find out more. And to further speak of, you know, what makes a good photograph, well, in your opinion and your professional opinion, I should say, what makes a photograph iconic, especially that it can make the cut for National Geographic? Well, it is hard. And I mean, sometimes it's iconic because of the event. So we, we talked a moment ago about 9-11, right? Some of those pictures from that day have become iconic because the event was so huge. But photographs can also become iconic just because they they do make you curious or, or make you want to celebrate or make you want to cry sometimes, right? It, it touches your heart. It it moves you in in a way. So images are are so important because people approach them differently. When two people see the same picture, they might think very different things. Um, you know, we've got a picture. Uh, in here that I particularly like, uh, and I like it so much it's actually on my wall in my office, but it's taken in 2019, and it's of a female U.S. Marine Corporal, and her name is Gabrielle Green, and she is getting ready for deployment, and she's marching up this steep ramp, and that wouldn't be that exceptional, except she's got a 200-pound man over her shoulder, right, and she is determined, and she is carrying this guy up this ramp, and there's no way she's going to drop him, and she's got a tattoo on her thigh that you can read, and it says, the fire inside me burns brighter than the fire around me. Oh, and I just love this picture. It's inspirational. It, it's like a can-do picture for women. It, I look at it, and it kind of puts things in, helps me keep things in perspective and reminds me of how powerful women really are and how much progress we've made. So I approach that picture and see that. You know, somebody else might approach it and see something else. Absolutely. I can't wait to see that one. Now that I know that that's one of your personal favorites, I'm really going to key in on that one. 
Well, okay. With the, of course, technology being what it is, uh, now we are at the mercy of our cell phones now. So are there any uh, pictures that you guys use that were taken from cell phones? You know, I think that there were because the, the fact is, is our photographers use all kinds of camera equipment, right? They use drones. They use some of the best cameras in the world. They use cameras that we specifically created for them to be able to take the best underwater photography or wildlife photography when you can't get too close to the animals. But they also use cell phones because cell phones are a way of kind of blending into that crowd, right, and not standing out as a photographer with a giant long lens. And so they use cell phones all the time to take pictures. One of the things that I always think is kind of funny is that now that everybody in the world takes pictures every day with their phones, right, people understand how hard it is to get a good picture, um, how difficult it is to be a great photographer. And I believe it makes people appreciate our photography even more. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, working in media, I have friends who said, oh, I understand, you know, I, I really understand what you do a lot better because they're, you know, doing the same thing, using their phones, trying to get pictures and such, video, all of that, all of that stuff. Well, lastly here, uh, I know the whole book is about uh, images from the 21st century so far as we roll along here, but when did you and your staff, when did you first start on collecting this for this book? How long did it take to assemble all of this? Well, you know, we started talking about this somewhere in the middle of 2020. Now, 2020 was a year that none of us will ever forget. Never. Um, you know, go, the pandemic, the racial reckoning, it was really, really a, a very difficult year. And um, we started thinking initially, wow, maybe we should just do a book of 2020 because it was such a memorable year. But then we decided to step back a little more, elevate, if you will, and to really look at everything that led us up to this point and begin it, you know, as you probably remember, um, Y2K, right? We all thought that there was going to be a giant meltdown. But right after, right after that, when 99 becomes 2000, so our book begins then and right up to this moment, because I think you get a more well-rounded picture of the times that we're living in and why we're living in these times when we look at the last 21 years and not just the past you know, year or two years. Well, the book, again, is the 21st century, photographs from the image collection. Uh, we, I think this is the kind of book not only good for the holiday season, but any time, any time, especially if you love photographs and books and coffee table style books. This is this is the granddaddy, grandma of them all, especially coming from National Geographic. So Susan Goldberg, thank you so much for giving us some backstory about the making of this wonderful book. I really appreciate your chat. Oh, thank you, Janice. Thank you for having me on your show. Okay, take care then, and uh, hopefully we'll see you the next time the next book comes out. I hope so. Thank okay, bye-bye. Okay, we are back here with more of Film Festival Radio Show, and we will continue on rolling right along with our guest of authors here. And so right now, uh, we're uh, waiting for our next guest. His name is Daniel DeVisay. I 
do think I am pronouncing his last name correctly. It looks very French to me, D-E-V-I-S-E, apostrophe over the E. I do believe it's Daniel Divisay. Uh The title of the book is The Rise and Reign of B.B. King. Yes, the late, great B.B. King. What a legend. What a legend. I understand that he lived right here in Las Vegas for many, many years. He is perhaps the most important artist in the genre of blues music of all time as far as longevity and and just i mean just an icon throughout the world uh his career just spanned it just seemed like it it never ended it, his career and his his popularity and his music lasted all the way up until the day he passed away and continues to be as popular as ever Fifteenth, according to the author here, research, B.B. King did approximately 15,000 concerts in 90 countries for over close to, I'll say close to 60 years, for almost 60 years. Look, let's look at those numbers again. Almost 15,000 concerts in 90 countries for almost 60 years. I mean, those are some numbers. But to my surprise, and probably you too, um, this musical legend did not really have a full-length authoritative biography released. No, I mean, there, there were a lot of unauthorized books, but a real authoritative biography until now. And that brings me back to our guest. Again, the short title is King of the Blues. And uh, I think our guest, Daniel DeVisay, has done an amazing job on research. He talked to so many family members and former band members and childhood friends, just people who really knew uh, Mr. King well. And so... Um, Again, this is one of those books, holiday season, time to get those gifts. This is a good one for the music lover out there, especially if they love music, uh, blues music. So uh, green lights blinking, let's bring on our guest, Daniel Divesay. Again, the book is The Rise and Reign of B.B. King. So let's bring Daniel on right now and just delve more into this very, uh, very well done book. So let's bring him on right now. Part of the interruption, we're now connected with the line of Janice Malone. We do have Daniel DeVizay standing by. I'm ready. Me too, thank you. Okay. Go ahead, Janice, that's Daniel. Hi, Daniel. So nice to chat with you. Uh, likewise, likewise been reading this book you've got a seems like a blockbuster here on your hand the book is uh about the life story of the late great blues legend bb king the title is king of the blues the rise and reign of bb king i mean other than the music daniel what was it about this story that attracted you to want to devote and spend so much time writing and researching it well, it, it is in the end all about the music. I felt that B.B. King, actually as famous as he is and as well-known as he is, and even though everybody kind of acknowledges he's the great blues guy, I didn't think he was getting all the credit that he deserved. Um, I believe, and what my book argues, is that B.B. King 
created a, a unique signature guitar sound, and, and that sound is the guitar played so that it sounds like a human voice. And it seems obvious now, yeah, obviously everybody plays that way, but everybody didn't used to play that way. B.B. Um, mm-hmm. King was the first, I would argue, who played that way. He learned to play that way in 1949, 1950. That was kind of his genius. He sort of humanized his guitar and gave her a name, Lucille, and then he would sing, and then he would throw it over to Lucille, and Lucille would sing. And it took a while, but sometime between 1950 and the 60s, a whole generation of guitarists learned to play that way. Uh, First, the great black blues guitarists like Albert King and Buddy Guy, and then later, a whole army of white British guitarists, and then still later, an even larger army of American guitarists, pop guitarists, and blues guitarists, and that's all B.B. King, and that's why he matters so much, in my opinion, and that's really ultimately why I wrote the book. Now, as you mentioned, he has influenced this generation, previous generation, just so many wonderfully uh, talented guitarists, but who influenced and inspired him when he was starting out as a guitarist? Well, he's from the Delta, but I would argue that his, and he himself said, his greatest influences were not the Delta to blues giants like Robert Johnson. Um, oddly enough, Robert Johnson's music would not have been something Mr. King would have heard when he was a young man. Um, the music, that music was lost until it was rediscovered in the 1960s. And Mr. Robert Johnson didn't really sell many records because he recorded during the uh, Depression. So uh, Mr. King's big influences were rhythm and blues uh, guitarists, jazz guitarists, uh, artists with big bands and, you know, arrangements, charts, horns. Uh, one of the earliest would be Lonnie Johnson, uh, who was a brilliant guitarist in the in the jazz and blues idioms, who was maybe the first prominent guitarist to, to solo on a single string. Bear in mind, there was no amplifiers in the 20s, so that was not the obvious thing to do with the guitar. And then in the 30s, Charlie Christian, the first great electric guitarist in jazz, is a huge influence on Mr. King. And then in the post-war 40s, T-Bone Walker, who was a rare example of a guitarist fronting a big rhythm and blues combo, was maybe the biggest influence of all on B.B. King. Um, And what was so unusual about T-Bone was simply that he was playing an electric guitar at the front of a band. Guitarists and guitars were not front and center at all in rhythm and blues or in pop music in the 40s and into the 50s. The, The instrument was almost not heard. So just the fact that Mr. King gravitated to the electric guitar, that almost set him apart from everybody else. Uh, Were there any surprises uh, as you did your research, delved more and more into his life story? I understand that you talked to so many uh, surviving members of his family and inner circle, band members and such. Any any surprises? We don't want to, of course, give away too much from the book, but something to share with us. (laughs) Well, I've got to give a shout-out to Ms. Laverne Tony, who ran B.B. King's entire Las Vegas operation for decades, literally decades. I had the honor of speaking to her and interviewing her multiple times, and she's in the book, and she's one of the voices in the book, and I hope she could listen to this broadcast. But um, the biggest surprise would have to be, again, getting to how the guitar was kind of ignored back in those days. Um, For the first decade or more that Mr. King was making music and recording music, he was really celebrated mostly as a singer. So if you if you were to find a clipping of of BB about BB King from the 50s, it would say here's BB King, the greatest blues singer. It would barely mention his guitar, 
In fact, even as late as uh, the, the famous Regal LP, which was recorded in Chicago in, I think, 64, Mr. King has been introduced as, ladies and gentlemen, the world's greatest blues singer, B.B. King. And what then happens is, you know, it's largely because of B.B. King that the guitar becomes so popular and guitarists become so popular. And you start having these guitar heroes, you know, maybe Chuck Berry and then all these British people and then Jimi Hendrix, the biggest guitar hero of them all, very much influenced by B.B. King. And then, you know, all these people start listening more to B.B. King's guitar because guitar is where the action is. And so by the, by the second half of the 60s, for, for certainly more and more people regarded him as, yes, an amazing singer, but also the great guitarist of blues. One thing that kind of surprised me uh, about your book is that it seems that B.B. is, you know, he's a world-renowned superstar, but he didn't seem to have a real hardcore love interest, even though he had been married a couple of times. Can you elaborate on that a minute? Oh, yeah. I, that was that bedeviled me during the time I was reporting the book. Um, I knew that Mr. King's second and last marriage to Sue, wonderful Sue, I interviewed her many, many times, um, ended in 1966. And that was pretty early on. I mean, that's 50-some years ago. I knew, and here I'll quote Laura Walker, a wonderful, wonderful source who was a huge central friend to Mr. King told me B.B. had, you know, after that had many women, hundreds of women, I'm quoting her, but but there was no one woman. And so I came to understand that after that second marriage ended, I would argue that Sue, B.B.'s second wife, was the love of his life and remained so all the way to the end. They, they remained very close. They realized that the marriage couldn't work because B.B. King was on the road all the time. But they stayed as close as could be, and she was always central in his thoughts. He would always invite her to see him perform when he had a really big deal gig, like going to Ireland or something. And he he dated lots of people and had lots of, I think, wonderful you know romances, but nothing ever again that came to the center of his soul. And that's because I think Sue was was the love of his life, and that's sort of central to understanding the man, I think. Now, uh, I understand that both of his marriages, he did not have any biological children with those wives, but yet he, he does have children, right? Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, he had 15 children, and he celebrated them for his whole life. And I would argue that because um, there had been terrible loss in Mr. King's early life, he lost his baby brother when he was, I believe, five years old. His mother died when he was 10, leaving him motherless. Uh, he was separated from his father, who started a different family. And then his grandmother, who was caring for him, died when he was, I think, 14. So he, he must have felt like he was alone in the world. And as his biographer, I would assert that he spent his entire adult life trying to build up a family. And that's what he did. Um, now, the people closest to Mr. King, every one of them told me that they believe that uh, m that most of the children are probably not biological children. Maybe none of them are. I don't know for sure. Um, and the reason for this would be that a fertility doctor told Mr. King in, back in the 50s that he couldn't, couldn't have children. But as the biographer, uh, what matters to me, what's really interesting is how Mr. King loved, loved this family. He would gather them together whenever he could and celebrate them. Uh, and it's a beautiful thing. He wanted to have his family, and he celebrated the family every opportunity he got. It's a fascinating book. And last question here. Where is his beloved Lucille, his beloved guitar? Where is Lucille today? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, there was a whole bunch of Lucille's. Uh, I, I wish I could say there was only one. Um, and I've lost count. But j- since his death, I've been aware of multiple examples of guitars that he signed, you know, as Lucille that have sold at auction for six-figure sums. So if you have one of them, uh, <laughs> you're set, you know. Um, but there were many, many Lucille's. And you Gibson partisans out there will be surprised to hear that in the 50s, he played any which kind of guitar, uh, Fenders, you know, Gretches, everything, and he, they would all be called Lucille. Ah, uh, okay. So that's good to know. There are many. I would love to know <laughs> the, the last Lucille that he performed and played, before, you know, before his death. That that would be one of my favorite Lucilles, but that's just me. Oh, you'd have to ask Ms. Ms. Laverne Tony or, or Myron Johnson, who I also interviewed. They would know where <laughs> where that guitar is. I don't. The final Lucille. Well, again, Daniel, this is a wonderful book, and for people who are especially uh, fans of Mr. King's and, and just the blues music itself. Get the book, King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King. I'm going to see if I'm going to get your last name correctly, Daniel. Daniel DeVise? Am I close? That no? is perfect. Yeah, ah! DeVise. Okay, DeVise. I was trying to practice while I was on hold there, but I got it. And uh, congratulations on the book, and hopefully, I'm sure we will. Uh, do you know your next um, topic of uh, person, of personality? Yeah. Who's that? Uh- my next book is going to be about the Blues Brothers, the movie. Oh, my goodness. Yes. We will be talking again then, for sure. Absolutely. I hope so. Love that movie. I'd love to. Love that movie. Okay, thank you again for the chat, and we'll see you at the bookstores. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Film Festival Radio with Janice Malone will be right back after this. Okay, we are back with our final segment of this week's show. Hope you are enjoying our guests. Aren't they fun? They're very talented people, and they have some, such fun projects, uh, bodies of work and such. So, And that includes our guest uh, who is join, who will be joining us in a couple of seconds here, maybe a couple of minutes to stretch it all out. She is uh, the co-founder of the Center Film Festival that's taking place Right now, as we speak, you still have time to uh, go to be a part of the fun, especially if you are in the mid-Pennsylvania area and Penn State country, Happy Valley country. That's where they're located. You can go to their website, centerfilm.org, and they spell center, C-E-N-T-R-E, film.org. Uh, this film festival, as I said, was co-founded by our upcoming guest here. Her name is Pearl Gluck. And this festival is only three years old, but it is garnering international attention from filmmakers from across the world and other large, very large international film festivals that uh, are working with them. So that tells you a lot about the caliber of this film festival. It's only, again, three years old. And it's... Uh, it, it started, I, I, as I said, with uh, our guest, Pearl. She's one of the co-founders. Uh, and I'll tell you that Pearl is an award-winning filmmaker, and she's also a Penn State professor of screenwriting and director, directing, I should say. And 
just a very talented lady uh, in front of the camera, behind the camera, and in the classroom as a professor. This festival uh, takes place in, I believe it's three different uh, theaters, historic theaters there in that mid-Pennsylvania area. So we'll talk more with Pearl about that. And I can tell you from my notes here, the festival, uh, as I said, is in its third year, and it's dedicated to bringing the finest in features and documentaries to the Happy Valley area and the surrounding communities as well. And one of the really unique aspects of the festival is that a percentage of all festival proceeds will benefit cancer patients and the support uh, people like caregivers and caregiving workers of cancer patients as well. What a noteworthy cause. So we're, we'll talk with um, Pearl about that as well. And also this festival has workshops. They will have, uh, they are having master classes, um, public events, uh, forums, and they're allowing students, not just college students at Penn State, but also middle school and high school students as well who are aspiring filmmakers, very young filmmakers. So it's a multi-generational uh, film festival as far as submission of films. So let me be quiet. I have talked enough. And let's bring on, because I see that our light is blinking here, let's bring on Pearl Gluck, who, as I said, she's one of the co-founders of the festival, and she can tell us more about some of their uh, premieres, uh, the screenings, I should say, screenings uh, of films that they will be showing. Just give us an all-around backstory as to how the festival began and what can people expect who are planning on attending. They still have time left to do that. So let's bring Pearl on right now. Hey, well, Pearl, now tell us about uh, the festival, how it got started, and uh, where everything takes place. Sure. Uh, this is a festival. I'm uh, standing right outside the theater right now. Uh, it always happens in early November and always at an away game since we're near Penn State and Penn State football is very important here. So, um, and basically it got started because we walk into a 107-year-old theater in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania, and I just was blown away. And this theater has never been cut up into pieces like a lot of these movie palaces were. It was started by a congressman, uh, Charles Rowland, um, back in generational stories. I think that's a very, very good idea. Because every generation has their own story, unique story. So, um, 
I've seen pictures of the Roland Theater, and you're right, it is very, very beautiful and historic. So I think that was a really cool idea to have a festival located there. Now, okay, I have, um, I understand that this is your third year, and uh, since you you are located in beautiful Happy Valley, and of course it's Penn State country, how in the world did you guys manage to get some attention away from Penn State football to do a wonderful event like this? I think that is such a terrific question because you really understand what goes on around here. <laughs> yes. um, the way we do it is we always stick an away game. It's always early in the fall, um, and it's in central PA where, yes, people love their football, but um, they clearly love their movie theaters too because they did not destroy this beautiful historic theater. There's also one in Altoona called the Michler, which is an old opera house that's absolutely astoundingly gorgeous. There's one in State College that's an old Warner Brothers theater. And then the one we're in, the home, the original home of our, our film festival is the Roland, which is in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania. And it was uh, actually started more than 100 years ago by a congressman, Charles Roland, who supported suffragists. So we like him. Um, <laughs> so this theater is absolutely stunning. I mean, you walk in and it's breathtaking, and we don't see theaters like that very often. I've seen pictures of it uh, on your website, and it looks like, a, you know, a Shakespearean-type old theater or something. Yeah. It's very beautiful. Very I think beautiful. that's right. Yeah. Very much. Well, now um, – Another uh, unique aspect about your festival is the multi-generational stories that are all, uh, you know, I see you have films from uh, some young filmmakers as young as middle school and, and also yeah. undergrad. So tell us about some of the, the middle school people. I mean, I think that's our commitment from the very beginning. Both uh, Kurt Chandler, my co-founder, and I were educators and and content creators. He's a digital multimedia storyteller, and I myself am a filmmaker. And we just decided that this is what we're going to do, is encourage young people here to feel like they can have a place in the cinema, in the world of cinema, and in the world of uh, digital storytelling. And so uh, from the very beginning, we encourage that. They sit on our jury at all three stages, high school, college, students and uh, industry professionals, but they're also kind of working with the festival, the jury, as I mentioned, and of course the films. So our intention, you know, our intention is to give them a space. So to get those films in, especially like middle schoolers, we just want to make sure they're being judged by their peers. So we have a peer programming com uh, committee that watches the high school and uh, younger shorts, and they're the ones who recommend to the programming committee which ones they want to select. So we try and keep it all integral in the system and make sure there's a uh, multi-generational conversation at each level. And it's amazing. We, I love it. I just love that a high schooler can sit on the same um, on the same jury with an actor like Kevin Mambo or, you know, a film industry professional like Matt Zatel, et cetera. You know, mm -hmm. so for me that's very inspiring, and I hope it is for them too. Oh, yeah, that's a very good idea that you, uh, all of your staff, you guys decided to do that. It's very unique for a film festival as well. To, to, uh, and believe me, we talk to a lot of film festival founders oh, and directors. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we do. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, I mean, look where we are, uh -huh. you know, and if we don't listen to what's happening in these parts of our country um, where there hasn't been a platform 
then we're going to end up not really understanding yeah. what the needs are and be able to serve them. So I think it's extremely important to create that platform for young people. Well, does Pennsylvania uh, have a, a, a thriving, current, thriving film community, or what is it like? Yeah, I mean, actually it does, but Pennsylvania, much like the country, the thriving communities are on the two edges, east and west, right? Mm -hmm. Philly and Pittsburgh. And then there's everything in the middle. Okay. That's where you <laughs> and that's come where in. we are. <laughs> so, yeah. as a New Yorker born in Brooklyn, you know, I never had to wonder what, that I can actually, quote unquote, get out there and do my stuff because I was already out there. I was born in New York. Yes. But when you're in Central PA and you think, you know, can I get out there? The answer is absolutely. And so, getting out there isn't so far anymore. It's just down the block at the theater in Phillipsburg. Makes a lot of sense to me. And, and then now, especially with technology being what it is. So exactly. uh, the festival is uh, on-site and virtual or totally on-site only this year? Well, of course, the intention from the very beginning was to have the festival old school, yeah. you know, before there was a term like in-person. Uh -huh. started in 2019. But then in 2020, the only safe way to have one was online, and so we did a virtual festival, and we doubled in size and brought in incredible films, and we got the trust of filmmakers that are out there at South by Southwest and Sundance um, and Dovell, which is abroad and, you know, in London and so on. So, you know, with the Berlin Film Festival, so all of a sudden these filmmakers are sending us their work, which is incredible. And then this year we're doing a gentle combination, a bit of a hybrid. So it's mostly online, and then we're doing in-person screenings across three theaters in Central PA, uh -huh. and staying, of course, in our alma mater, which is the Roland. Absolutely. Oh, what a, I, yeah, I and we have four. Like, there's 14 visiting filmmakers, and some of them wow. like, come from like the Dominican Republic. Oh, <laughs> but we're looking at Tribeca winners and Sundance winners. I mean, not that those have to matter that much, mm -hmm. but it does help to give people a sense that we're a place that people want to come to and we're at a festival where these conversations can happen. And for your festival to only be just three years old and to draw the attention of filmmakers from those caliber of festivals is amazing. That shows, obviously, you guys are doing we're, a lot of good things. We're so honored, honestly, and it's a privilege to be able to show them and even host them. Um, at the after party last night, it was just, I sat back in this lounge that this guy created and, you know, in a dilapidated building that he revived here in an old coal town, you know, coal mining town in Phillipsburg. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking around the room and these filmmakers are there playing pool and chatting and, you know, talking about their process. And it was just incredible. And two of our interns were there and they were just, you know, networking and doing what you need to do at a film festival. It was great. It sounds like there's a lot of fun last night. But it was. You'll have to come next I'll year, Janet. I'll have to. I'm a huge college football fan. So oh, really? Oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> oh, Are you goodness. in Texas? Uh, no, it, it looks like I'm in Texas. I'm actually God. in Las Vegas. <laughs> oh, my God. That's great. Yeah. I'm in Las Vegas. Sunny Las Vegas. It is not cold here at all, but... Uh, I would love to experience Happy Valley uh, just to see it, even if it's an away game. Uh, I get uh -huh. to experience the <laughs> festival. I think that would be a lot of fun. Absolutely. We'll take you to Beaver Stadium. Oh, wow. And yeah. maybe we'll put you on the jury, Jana. Okay. Hey, I would love that. You better get that. your uh, judge hat on. I huh? would love that. I haven't done that in so long. It would be, that would be so much fun. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> 
Well, I got a couple of last questions here. Now, sure. tell us. I mean, I know. I mean, you're in the middle of the festival. You got a lot going on today and tomorrow yeah. and the next day. But uh, give us a couple of uh, highlight films that you guys are, are very excited about that will be uh, premiering. Sure. I'm going to go in the spirit of the festival, and I'll start with high schoolers. Okay. There's one film that is made uh, about uh, this young man makes a movie about his father, who is like a Guggenheim award-winning filmmaker. But the film in its own right has its own identity, and it's really terrific. It's called Think Like a Filmmaker. Oh, so we're wow. super excited about that one. And then from college students, I'm really excited about how international this year is. And there's one film called Cop that's out of uh, a film school in Leningrad. Um, and it is so terrific. And we had him on a Q&A. And then in terms of, like, our documentaries, there are so many, and they're so incredible, from Iran to Afghanistan, you know, to London, uh, obviously in the United States. So it's really tough to pick one, um, but I just love that global piece, and we have a whole Made in PA section. So, you know, there's that conversation happening on screen. And then um, with the fiction features, um, there's one called Beans from Canada, which is about the okra uprising um, for indigenous people where they were trying to take their land. And a lot of us didn't even know about it. And the actress, when she came to talk at the festival, said the same thing. So, like, I'm embarrassed to say I'm indigenous and I'm not, even wasn't even aware of this. And the film's incredible. Um, and then, you know, we started something called Up Close where we meet people from the region who have gone out there and worked in the industry and they come back and talk to us. So today we have Patrick Fabian here from Better Call Saul and we're showing his latest film called Driver X and he's here with his mom who happened to have been an usher right here at the theater. Oh my goodness. So I love that story. And then Michael Craven is, you know, is on the team that shot Netflix, the, the chair and uh, is it called The Happiest Season, the Christmas film with Chris, uh, uh, Kristen Stewart, right? Um, it's an LGBT Christmas film. So, you know, he came and showed some tricks and tips on the camera. And then last night we had Joshua Leonard um, from, you know, Funny or Die and Blair Witch. Mm -hmm. He's from here. He was raised here. His father was part of the theater department, and he showed Fully Realized Humans. So we're just really excited. We're just excited to be able to have this conversation at all levels. Oh, yeah. So we've tried on film, you know, like we're really looking at ways in which people can see themselves on screen. And and you have these wonderful stories of people who are now very successful in film and television yeah. with roots from right there in your region. That that makes exactly. it even better. Exactly. Well, look at Donald P. Belisario, mm -hmm. right? And then he names the College of Communication because yeah. he's from here and he was a veteran and he didn't have a penny to his name. And look at the career he's made for himself incredible. coming out of Penn State. So he really gives back. Yeah, it's incredible. And these are the kinds of things like, yeah, it all started with a theater for me and a passion for film. But then I started to learn a lot about, you know, the history here. Well, I'll tell you, Pearl, it sounds like that the Center Film Festival is going to give Penn State, the football team, a run for its money here. Ah! Anybody could tackle. I'll send you a bill if you want. I'll send 
that. Please, please send it. I never, ever would have thought that anybody could tackle Happy Valley and Penn State football, but you guys have managed to do it. <laughs> I love that. I love that you get it. Oh, yeah, I get it. I'm telling you. In fact, I have college football on right now since we speak. Wow. All right. They're starting soon, aren't they? Yes. What, Penn State's at 3.30, right? Yes. Yeah. Not, not yeah. too long from now. Well, my last question here, um, uh, another aspect of your film festival that makes it unique, you're giving uh, a percentage of the proceeds to benefit cancer patient support. So tell us about yeah. that. Well, uh, someone on our team has just uh, found out that they have cancer, and another person on our team has been um, someone who's been very active in care for older, the for adult caregivers of people with cancer, and so the combination just kind of um, presented itself as an opportunity for us to give back, um, and that's what we're doing. So we're just going to keep that going, and the idea is to try and affect research um, and create funding opportunities for people who, like caretakers, who really just need a little more support to be able to be there for their um, for their loved ones. Yes, that is a huge, huge problem. Uh, well, we hear these stories all over. Caregivers, caretakers really do need that kind of support. What, are, what a wonderful, wonderful uh, thing for you guys to do. Exactly. So hard work. Yeah, I mean, it kind of really just presents itself. It's just mm-hmm. so obvious. Yeah, that we need right. to do that. And lastly, website where people can go and get their tickets and come on board to see all this sure. wonderful activity. Well, we're at centerfilm.org. Center, uh, don't ask us how this happened. And though we are in the center of Pennsylvania, it is spelled C-E-N-T-R-E, Centre. Okay. So it's the centerfilm.org, and you can check us out anytime. Um, our festival lasts for another day, day and a half before our award ceremony, but uh, you can certainly look at what's happening and start making some plans to come here for next November. Like me. We'd love to have you. Yeah, like me. And, exactly. Uh, you better I, believe yeah. it. i got to get there. I must get there. Um, the Definitely last question. Now, when sure. do you guys start accepting film submissions so people can get ready for that right. as well? That's a really good question. Uh, we could open pretty quickly. We just uh, need a minute to recover, but um, they can look. Whoever wants to submit, we'd love to see your work. Um, and we're on Film Freeway okay. uh, for submissions. Okay, that's it. Everybody loves Film Freeway. Zoom, zoom. Everybody, yeah, it's easy. It's all set up. It's ready to go. Well, Pearl, I just have enjoyed chatting with you so much. Same. Same here. Thank you so much. And I am so serious. I'm going to look into definitely coming to visit you guys uh, next November. I'd love that. And if you want to email me, uh, Amy's got my email. So, um, yeah, I can send you whatever information you might want. Okay. And that's still up to James Franklin and Keegan Michael, if you'd like. I would love them. Big Keegan Michael fans. That's for you. That'll be my gift to you. Oh, thank you. Two thank of your you. favorite people. Yes. I love it. Well, I know awesome. you've got a lot to get to in the middle yes. of the festival, so I will No, but it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Same here. Same here. And hopefully I'll see you in a year. Wonderful. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Okay, absolutely. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Pearl, for giving us some insight behind the story. Uh, Yeah, I hope this time in a year that I can join them 
Uh, it sounds like a beautiful area. I've never, I've been to Pocono Mountains, I've been to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, but I've never been to Happy Valley area. But I am a big college football fan, as I shared with Pearl. So I think that would be a lot of fun next November to go and hang out and get the royal treatment uh, from everybody at the Center Film Festival. And again, make sure that there is time left that you can go click in and maybe if you live or visiting in that area you can stop by on some of their on-site events the film festival's website again is center and that's spelled c-e-n-t-r-e film.org centerfilm.org to uh, get all of the information uh, so that you can get in on the uh, fun the premieres and such workshops master classes all that great stuff Okay, we are so out of time. want to thank all of my guests for joining us as always. Thank you guys for listening. We've been doing Film Festival Radio since 2007. Started its podcast when nobody cared what a podcast was. We did. And now we are on podcast and uh, terrestrial radio and still growing. So thank you guys for listening, and we will see you on the next edition of Film Festival Radio Show. Have a great rest of the week, and and make sure you have a very safe week as well. And we'll see you guys next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another edition of Film Festival Radio with your host, Janice Malone. Be sure to download this and other episodes at filmfestivalradio.com.